0: podcast come along as we examine ufo sightings conspiracies and all things strange i am your host agent anderson check out the links in the description where you can find all of our wonderful things in one place on the link tree where you can find our discord our patreon our merchandise, and more. This week's episode, The Greenspan Put. All right, The Greenspan Put. Now, this one has to do with a lot of financial stuff, and that stuff gets pretty confusing at times. So I've done my best to sort of, I don't know, make it to where it's, you know, more accessible. Not that I fully understand all this crap myself, but just a disclaimer here. I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. I'm just doing my best to try to talk about a topic. So if I get it wrong and you're some kind of financial wizard, then go ahead and send me an email and let me know. Find the email on the link tree. All right. This one was chosen by our Patreon subscribers. I was kind of a little surprised, but we've got, so we've got three tiers of patreon the first tier will get you early access and after hours the middle tier will get you bonus episodes and finally the top tier will allow you to vote on upcoming topics this is what they chose for this week i am very surprised because uh this is like some financial stuff usually anytime you mention a financial stuff to people they just run screaming and you know into the other room or wherever you're not like, no, 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 we do not want to hear about this. So I was a little surprised that they chose this one. Although I love these topics. We've done a little bit of this, not a whole lot, but a little bit on the show. So I'm happy to do more of it. And I'm I'm kind of glad, uh, pleasantly surprised they chose this one over whatever else I had up, which I think was a UFO topic of some kind. But all right, let's get to it. Alan Greenspan. Uh, It's, you know, maybe a little bit long ago, so maybe people are not as familiar with him these days as they used to be, born in 1926. He's been around a long time. He's almost 100 years old at this point. He was chair of the Federal Reserve from 1987 until 2006, and he served under Presidents Ronald Reagan, G.H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton and GW Bush the father and the son he was he held the position uh, there's only one person who held it longer than him named William McChesney during his tenure Alan Greenspan that is he was famous uh, sort of like a rock star like a financial rock star everybody paid attention to what he did everybody knew who he was and I think the fact that he didn't really do anything Any interviews outside of what he would publicly say for the Federal Reserve as the head of the Federal Reserve. He didn't really do any public interviews during his tenure, which kind of added to his mystique. You know, it's kind of like if you, the less you say, the more people become interested in it. And because he was such a powerful figure, people were very interested in what he had to say. People would pay very, so close attention to stuff he did that if they saw him buying a pack of gum in the store, they thought it meant something. They thought, oh, he's sending us a message. That gum, you know, Wrigley Spearmint, it's about to go up, let's go buy stock, you know? Or if he went to Starbucks for his coffee in the morning, people would go just absolute, you know, absolutely in a frenzy, oh, let's buy Starbucks. he must be He must be sending us a message. He comes from a, a line of, of uh, financial people. At least his father was a stockbroker anyways and was probably around for the infamous 1929 stock market crash. Greenspan earned his bachelor's in economics from the New York, school of Stern, New York Stern School of Business, his master's from the same school, and his PhD in economics from the New York University. Interestingly enough, Greenspan's dissertation discusses soaring housing prices and their effect on consumer spending and anticipates a housing bubble that would burst. He had his dissertation removed from the library when he became the chair of the Federal Reserve, so you can no longer look it up, but a journalist found it and wrote an article about it. So if you want to dig really deep into this topic, you can go ahead and look up his dissertation. You might be able to find it online somewhere, but whether it's relevant to the current discussion or not. I don't know. I'll let you guys be the judge of that. From 1948 to 1953, he worked as an analyst for the Conference Board think tank. I tried to look up what they actually do and I couldn't fi- I couldn't really find out what the Conference Board think tank actually did. <laughs> so, I mean, I only looked for maybe 15 minutes or so and then I decided to give it up because it's I don't know how important it is. I mean, it's important, but at some point I had to move on because there are so many topics to touch on. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get out of this one in an hour. I don't want to do it a two-parter, so I'm just going to keep going until it's over. If it's two hours, it's two hours, but there's a lot to talk about, so I had to move on from that one. From 55 to 87, he was chairman and president of Townsend Greenspan and Company, an economic consulting firm. And also from 74 to 77, served under President Gerald Ford on his Council of Economic Advisors. And when he was, the Townsend and Greenspan and Company was a consulting firm. And from what I understand, they would consult certain corporations about economic stuff. You know, like Ford Motor Company might ask them, hey, um, should we do more cars or less cars last year? What's the economy looking like? Are people going to be able to afford this stuff? What price should we charge them? You know, that kind of stuff. So he would do, you know, just... Broad economic advice, I guess, to these companies. That's how I understood it. I could be way off base there, but that's what he did there. And this—the reason I'm pointing this kind of stuff out—is that already he has connections in a lot of high places, just by what he does. You know, and like I said, he consulted or he served under President Gerald Ford. He's meeting a lot of important people. People consider him to be a, a financial genius, the smartest guy in the room. And, as we've talked about before on this show, anytime somebody thinks they're the smartest person in the room, you might they might not be. <laughs> you know it's kind of like,, uh, what is that quote from Game of Thrones, the um the lannister, the the head Lannister? What's his name? Uh, you know, any any man who has to say that he is king is no king. I guess kind of a deal, which is a great quote. And what's that guy? I forget a Tywin Lannister. I think that's his name. The actor that plays that guy does such a good job. He was so good in that role. You know, anytime you have a villain that if you saw him in real life, you'd just be like, Oh, I hate that guy. You know, he's doing a good job at his role, you know? (laughs) All right. So basically Greenspan is a corporate wall street guy with a lot of connections and I'm sure that had nothing to do with the decisions that he made as chair of the Federal Reserve. I'm being sarcastic, of course. <laughs> there, so there's a lot of different economic theories and philosophies out there. Obviously, I mean, that kind of goes without st- uh, saying, sort of like communism versus capitalism. That's an obvious one. But there's even more, plenty more than that. And there's a lot of nuanced opinions for for capitalism. How exactly should capitalism work? A lot of different ideas out there. Greenspan is a proponent of monetarism or the idea that policymakers should carefully control the amount of money in circulation. Here's a quote from Wikipedia about what that means because you might think, okay, well, big, big whoop, what does that actually mean? The monetarist theory asserts that variations in in the money supply have major influences on the national output in the short run and on price levels over longer periods. Monetarists assert that the objectives of monetary policy are best met by targeting the growth rate of the money supply rather than by engaging in discretionary monetary policy. Monetarism is commonly associated with neoliberalism. All right, so right there, you can see why this episode is so difficult and problematic. This is one of his big beliefs, and it's important to understand what his beliefs are because those lead to what his actions are. But right here already, we have a couple of key words like money supply. What exactly does that mean? National output. What does that mean specifically? We're talking about economic output, industrial output, uh, you know, Price levels, I guess, is what stuff costs. That's not a big deal. Monetary policy—that's a whole set, subset of episodes on its on its own. You know, money supply. What is money supply? Discretionary money. It's, there's all this stuff that we we could. It's a whole Pandora's box or a can of worms or whatever. It leads to like so many different things. It's like, what do I even talk about on here? Because all of this stuff is important. So I don't. I don't even know. Where to begin, to be honest. But let's just talk about a couple of them briefly. Discretionary monetary policy is the idea that rather than following a set of rules or a formula, policy should be made on a case-by-case basis. So there's no formula saying that when this happens, we should do this. Instead, we should act differently based on the situation, which I don't know. That kind of makes sense to me. There's no point in following a strict set of rules on every single Case because, you know, this stuff is very, the economy is extremely complicated and there is no one formula that's going to be able to apply to everything. Neoliberalism, that's a fun one. (laughs) Well, how is that different from liberalism? Well, this means something specific in the context of economics and it means something completely different in other realms. It's a term that is poorly defined in different people throw it around in different ways to mean different things. But in the context of the economy, we're talking about free market capitalism. Uh, other other cases, it means other things entirely. So free market capitalism, uh, this one is very important. Another term for this is laissez-faire or zero regulation. Ronald Reagan, the guy who appointed Greenspan, once famously said government is not the solution to the problem government is the problem kind of shocking uh, but ronald reagan had a chip on his shoulder the size of mount everest let's not go too far afield that's you know a whole other topic and entirely i could do easily do a 15 30 minute segment just on ronald reagan and his economic ideas but basically when he was an actor the Tax the graduated tax rate, So for for foreign listeners, people outside of the United States, I'm not sure how taxes are done in other countries, but in the United States, we have a graduated tax bracket. So let's say let's say you make a hundred dollars. Just, just this is not what the numbers are. I'm just picking uh, even numbers to make it easy. Hundred dollars. So the first ten dollars is not taxed at all dollars 10 to 20 might be taxed at 5% and so on and so forth. And then dollars 90 to a hundred will be taxed, you know, at, um, let's say 50% or whatever. I'm just picking numbers out of thin air here. So if you make, let's say $40, you might pay, you know, 30% of that in taxes and somebody who makes $100 their first $40 is also taxed at that rate but like dollars 90 to 100 is taxed at is a at a much higher rate the idea here is that well let's i don't want to get too much into the philosophical thing but basically the more money you make the more able you are to pay taxes and the government is very expensive to run unfortunately there are so many loopholes that it turns out that rich people don't really pay that much in taxes. And, you know, as, as, um, what's his name? Warren Buffett famously said, um, it's unfair that I'm in a lower tax bracket than my secretary. There's reasons for that. We won't go into them now, but basically rich people are essentially in a lower tax bracket, even though the system is designed for it to be the opposite. But when Ronald Reagan was an actor, um, He, after, after making a certain number of movies every year, the tax brackets were so high that after like two or three movies, his third movie, he would be like in the 90% tax bracket. Meaning that if he made a million dollars, he would only keep a hundred thousand of it. He was not happy with this. And when he was president, he definitely, he, he did such big tax cuts that he did instead of making it fair. And let's, let's be real. A 90% tax bracket even though these rich people, you could argue, well, they don't really need that money anyways. But on the other hand, that's kind of, kind of excessive, right? But instead of like being more reasonable about it, Ronald Reagan said, okay, we're just going to do a complete 180. We're going to go the complete opposite way because I think he felt that he never came out and said this that I'm aware of, but I think he felt that he'd been unfairly treated by by the IRS. So he basically did 180 and said, okay, we're basically not going to tax rich people at all. <laughs> you know, it's kind of his philosophy. But let's not go too far into that. That's a whole other can of worms. And, you know, to be fair or to be honest, there is really no fair tax bracket. The every, if whoever you ask, they're going to say, The most fair tax system is the one where I pay the least, (laughs) you know, that's how a lot of people feel. I don't know. I don't really have strong opinions on it one way or another. Um, You know, you got to pay your taxes, but what, what is that number? What number is fair? I honestly, I couldn't say, you know, I've paid taxes and I still pay taxes. Sometimes those taxes seem very excessive, but I don't know. I really don't know. It's hard, you know, forest versus the tree kind of a thing. Anyways, let's move on because I could rant about this stuff for a long time. Like I said, this economic policies in the 80s, a whole other, whole other can of worms. We could go on that for a long time. Like we're already almost to 20 minutes here, maybe after edits, maybe 15 minutes and we've barely even just gotten started. But it's important to know that one of the big ideas going around in the 80s was laissez faire capitalism. Removing regulations from markets to allow them to do their thing, so that you know the idea is that markets are more efficient without regulation. If you've been around the last you know decade or two, you are well aware of why that's actually not the case. But that is an idea that is still around today. Let's read a quote here about laissez-faire. Again, once from from the uh, from the cradle of all knowledge of humankind, Wikipedia. Advocates of laissez-faire capitalism argue that it relies on a constitutionally limited government that unconditionally bans the initiation of force and coercion, including fraud. Therefore, free market economists such as Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell argue that under such a system, relationships between companies and workers are purely voluntary and mistreated workers will seek better treatment elsewhere. Thus, Most companies will compete for workers on the basis of pay, benefits, and work-life balance just as they compete with one another in the marketplace on the basis of the relative cost and quality of their goods. Now, that sounds great. That idea sounds like, yeah, that sounds like it would work great. But in practice, when you remove regulation, the end result is that the companies basically get to make the regulation instead of the government. Look at the history, look at history to see how this works out. Now, this is the only way you can possibly think laissez faire is a good idea is if you're completely ignorant of history. Look at the Industrial Revolution, where you basically had absolutely no regular, no labor regulations at all. Uh, I don't want to go on too much of a rant. I believe I've spoken about this before on the show, but basically, workers had zero rights. Companies made up the rules and you had situations where people were falling into machinery and being mangled, maimed permanently or, um, you know, even killed because safety regulations were not in place. And like like I said up here, oh, if workers aren't being treated good, they can just go find a job somewhere else. Well, it's hard to do that when you had both your legs chopped off by a machine and nobody wants to hire you anymore because you literally can't do that job, (laughs) you know or in even more extreme cases that were not accidents. You could you could say that accidents are like, well, they didn't do it on purpose, they're not trying to maim their employees because they want them to be able to work. Uh, you know, work. so that was just an accident and things got better over time. Sure, sure, whatever. But working conditions are also really bad. They force people to work like 24-hour shifts or worse without breaks, you know, that kind of a thing. But it gets even worse when people would try to organize Back in the day in the Industrial Revolution, they had this group, multiple groups, but one of the most famous one was called the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons were often hired by people such as Andrew Carnegie to break up strikes. How would they do that? Would they throw eggs at people? No, no, they did not do anything nearly as nice as throwing eggs at people or maybe having a pillow fight. The Pinkertons would go and find people like labor leaders or people who are involved in strikes, go to their houses maybe harass their families, break their legs, and even murder people. So this is why, if you're aware of history, uh, it's just, you know, the theory of laissez-faire is just completely naive. You know, if you look at history and you see that when workers had disagreements with employers, they were in some cases actually murdered by those employers. So yeah, it's not about, you know, oh, if I don't like my work-life work balance, I can just go work somewhere else, especially when you have big companies that set the rules and one company is the same as another and they're all mistreating their employees. It's it's a sticky wicket. I'm not saying that, you know, labor unions are the answer either because that those can be problematic at times. It's a, it's a sticky wicket, and I'm not trying to be a proponent of one thing or another, but I am, I am coming down under the side of laissez-faire being um, a little naive in practice, it, or the idea is naive, and you have to be completely unaware of history in order to think that's a good idea. In my opinion, if I'm wrong you know, shoot me an email. Maybe you have an idea to counteract that. You know, like I said, I'm not an economist, but I did take some history classes and I saw how lack of regulation worked out in certain cases in history. Let's get let's get back to Greenspan. Anyways, back to him. He's a huge proponent of free market. He's does not like regulation. He thinks no regulation is a good thing. And this is important to how things unfold later on. He's also a believer in the Austrian school of economics or the concept that the social phenomena result, Uh, hold on, let me start that again. The concept that social phenomena result primarily from the motivations and actions of individuals and their self-interest. Austrian school theorists hold that economic theory should be exclusively derived from basic principles of human action. Uh, I don't know. Does that make sense? clear as mud to me, whatever. I don't want to get. Let's let's skip on. I don't want to get too much into the weeds of that kind of stuff because we got to get to the Greenspan put, although all this stuff is relevant, but still we're getting bogged down here. He also is a proponent of social security privatization. Basically, social security taxes would go to private accounts rather than having the government handle things. And what are we talking about here? We're talking about the stock market, basically stocks and bonds. That's where most of the social security money would end up if it was in private accounts. The main problem with putting your retirement savings, this includes retirement accounts like 401ks as well. The problem I have with that is that when you actually go to retire, if there's a market downturn, then um, you're screwed. You know, you are absolutely screwed. I know people personally who wanted to retire, they've been saving their whole lives And when it came time to retire, the market took a dump and they had to continue working for many years. Not to mention that they keep ratcheting up the retirement age of when you're allowed to access your 401k funds. So, you know, right now, I don't know, 65, 67, what, 55 used to be retirement age and they keep jacking that up. And now it's, who knows when it's time for me to retire, it's going to be 75 and you're basically dead by then. So you never, it's a scam. In my opinion, because you're forced to put your money into this retirement—well, uh, not force, but they encourage you to put money into the retirement account where it's locked away for your lifetime. You cannot touch it without huge penalties. And when you get there, they've probably either increased your, your the age you're allowed to touch it, or there's a market downturn so you can't touch it because it—you know—you just lost half of it. So it's it's not a good idea for workers to do this in a lot of cases but it's a great idea if you're one of the you know top 10th percent of the 10th percent if you're one of the wealthy elite who has most of their money in assets like the stock market because you benefit from you know people putting their money into the stock market their whole lives inflates the price of those assets so um I don't know I don't want to talk more about that because it's a whole other probably episode but for me it seems like to me it feels like it's a scam to inflate the assets of the top 1% of the top 1%. That's who benefits from these. Everybody else does not. All right, now let's get to the Federal Reserve. We did a whole episode on the Federal Reserve, but I think it's important to to talk about what exactly is this, briefly anyway, since we're talking about the guy who was in charge of the Federal Reserve, and our foreign listeners may not know what they are and what they do, and probably a lot of United States listeners don't know what they are and what they do other than they're just a government entity that does economic stuff. Well, like we said in our previous episode that this, this episode was a long time ago. It's probably sub, I don't know, sub 20, even I'd have to look it up, but it was a while ago, but it turns out the federal reserve is not federal. It has no reserves and it is not a system at all, but rather a criminal syndicate. That's a quote by Eustace Mullins, (laughs) but yeah, it's It's a private entity that runs our federal economy, which is kind of strange. Here's some quotes I found, just not having to do much with anything except for, you know, the Federal Reserve and banks in general. It is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system, for if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. That quote was by Henry Ford. Yes, that Henry Ford, the Henry Ford. All right. The Federal Reserve is answerable to no one. That's a quote by Ronald Reagan, straight from the uh, straight from the mouth of the guy who was in favor of this stuff. Let me issue, or I should say, straight from the guy who appointed Alan Greenspan, let me issue and control the nation's money, and I care not who writes the laws. Uh, who was that one? I forgot to who I forgot who that quote was from. I forgot to put it here, but. Uh, the point is, is that whoever controls the money controls the nation, and the people controlling the money are banks. The it's I won't get into the structure, but it's just a bunch of banks. The issuing power of money should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. That was Thomas Jefferson. That was Thomas Jefferson before the Federal Reserve was created, but still. You know, there were many attempts over the years to create something like the Federal Reserve, and Thomas Jefferson thought that was a very bad idea. Whoever controls the volume of money in our country is the absolute master of all industry and commerce. When you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few very powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. That was President James A. Garfield, who was assassinated in office before the creation of the Federal Reserve, but he was opponent of such things. Um, There are many cases of people being assassinated, and there are a lot of shenanigans those are cases for another day. All right, here's the last quote. I mean, there's a bunch of quotes about this stuff by prominent figures, but here's one that I found completely surprising. This one, well, here we go. The Federal Reserve Bank of of New York is eager to enter into close relationship with the Bank for International Settlements. The conclusion is impossible to escape that the state and treasury departments are willing to pool their banking system of Europe and America, setting up a world financial power independent of and above the government of the United States. The United States is under pressure. No, the United States under present conditions will be transformed from the most active of manufacturing nations into, cons- into a consuming nation with a balance of trade against it. And that was Lewis Thomas McFadden. Let me read that last part again. The United States under present conditions will be transformed from one of the most from no, from the most active of manufacturing nations into a consuming nation with a balance of trade against it. Louis Thomas McFadden, who was a Republican in the House of Representatives from Pennsylvania. He served from 1915 until uh, 1935, and he died in 1936. Some people think that his death was an assassination, but uh, let's talk about what some of his beliefs were just briefly. He thought that the 1928, 1929 crash was engineered, among other things. Um, we might do a whole episode on this guy. This guy was like a hundred years ago, and it's crazy that he predicted that our nation would shift from one a nation of manufacturing stuff to a nation of consuming stuff with a trade deficit. How did he know that was going to happen it's almost like the guy knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Um there were before he he died uh before that there were two previous assassination attempts on him, one of them being a poison, one being um somebody trying to kill him with a gun. But I'm sure when he died, I don't know, being the most vocal critic of the Federal Reserve and passing the McFadden Act which sought to limit the power of banks, I'm sure that had nothing to do with his death, which appeared to be a poisoning. Who knows? I kind of want to do a whole episode on this guy at some point in the future. It's unfortunate this guy uh there's more so after he left towards the end of his office he seemed to well not seemed he definitely said more and more anti-semitic things and that's really unfortunate because you know because he was anti-semitic and you know the whole nazi thing was going on at the time people dismiss his other ideas and I don't know. I, I want to look more into this guy. Was he really just a crazy guy who was anti-Semitic or did he have something valuable to say? I'm not sure. But the fact is that based on this quote, he predicted a long time ago what would end up happening later on. So that catches my interest to think that this guy maybe knew what he was talking about outside of, of course, you know, the evil Jews kind of thing, which is surprising. But surprising and unfortunate because it it makes it easy to dismiss other stuff he said. And, you know, it's always a bad look when you're being racist or whatever against people. But all right, let's move on. What is the Federal Reserve? It's the central banking system of the United States created on December 23rd, 1913, after a series of financial panics that may or may not have been created to help its passing. <laughs> hey, it's a conspiracy show, right? So we got to look under every every rock, every nook and cranny to see, you know, what is the truth here? Is it what is the story we're being told the actual story? I don't know. I suspect it is not. Anyways, go listen to our previous episode on that. The structure of the Federal Reserve is a little confusing, but basically it's an organization made up of a bunch of different banks. Here's, um, here's a quote from good old Wikipedia. The four main components of the Federal Reserve System are the Board of Governors, the Federal Open Market Committee, the 12 regional federal banks that aren't federal but privately owned by other banks, and the member banks throughout the country. It's a system designed to give the illusion of being a government entity, but in reality, all of these four main components are just representations of privately held banks. So it's a private system to give the illusion of a public system. If you look throughout the history, every time there's been a financial crisis, somehow the Federal Reserve was able to expand its powers and do more stuff. It's not really well defined what the limits are in the Federal Reserve. So every time something happens, they're just like, yeah, we're just going to do this stuff that we've never done before. That's totally crazy. Because uh, we we got it's too big to fail. We can't let this you know fail. Our economic system needs to be maintained. That kind of stuff. You've all heard it before. One of the key roles of the Federal Reserve is setting the monetary policy for the United States, which it does mainly by setting interest rates. It does a lot of lot of stuff, but usually what you hear about the most is the interest rates. Why is this such a big deal? How does it work? Well. Basically, when rates go down, it increases the availability of money or increases the money supply. And when rates go up, it decreases the availability of money or decreases the money supply. This is all tied to the fractional reserve banking system. turns out that most money is actually completely made up. It doesn't exist at all. It's just invented out of thin air. When you deposit money in the bank, they lend that money out many times over. It's kind of a strange system, but that's how it works. You know, at least in the United States, that's how it works in most places. If you deposit $100 in the bank, the bank will then loan out, roughly speaking, $1,000. So they've just created 900 new dollars. Now, it depends on, you know, the, the location. You know, different places have different requirements, of you know capital requirements and stuff, different nations. It probably depends on the type of loan and these sorts of things like that. So maybe in some places it's more, in some places it's less, depending on the situation. But basically, it's you know generally a ten to one ratio is a is a good starting place for all this stuff, and that's that creates new money, and it can get uh, it can snowball. So let's say hypothetically. One person deposits $100, right? Nine other people or 10 other people or how, you know, however you want to do the math, all go hire 10 contractors who deposit $100. So now you've just created $10,000 out of thin air. It's, it's kind of a bizarre system. And you think, well, if you deposit your money in the bank, aren't they supposed to hold that money for you? Yeah, they, I guess, I mean... But, you know, you've heard of the run on the banks. If everybody went to try to take their money out of the bank all at once, they wouldn't be able to because it's it's not there. The money just isn't there. It's been loaned out already. Why does lowering the interest rates increase the supply of money? It's because borrowing becomes easier and cheaper. It's, it's a lot more complicated than this, but let's just look at a simple example. Let's say that the United States government has bonds that pay a 3% interest. It's a good solid investment, very unlikely to fail. It's, you know, as close to guaranteed as you're ever going to get. It doesn't pay out very much money, but it's above the target 2% inflation rate, and it's a safe investment. So let's say the interest rates are 5%. So if you take money out to buy bonds, you're losing money overall. But if rates go down to 1%, then you can borrow a bunch of money, buy bonds, and it's basically free money at that point. It's 2%. It's not very much but you're not using your own money. You're using somebody else's money. So it's free money. So uh, people who are able to do so take out loans and buy bonds. This has all sorts of interesting implications. And my example here is a very, very simple example that probably doesn't accurately reflect the way things work in the real world, but it's just sort of an example to kind of get ideas flowing. You know, think of it as in a business sense, it's the exact same thing in a business sense, only instead of bonds, you're talking about maybe products, right? So if you're selling a product and your margin is 10%, loans are, you know, you can get a loan for 8% that cuts into your margins and you don't have as much money left over, then you're less likely to buy this stuff because it's a lot riskier. If you don't sell all of your inventory, it's going to be a lot harder to make money for this business. If interest rates are zero, then you're going to borrow all sorts of money and buy as much crap as possible because it doesn't cost you anything. And this therefore is a lot less risky to carry more inventory rather than less inventory. You know? Another interesting thing is that the stock market is inversely correlated to interest rates. So when rates go down, the stock market goes up and vice versa. It's sort of like the bond example, right? The lower the interest rates, the more likely it is that you can borrow money and make a profit on your investment, come out ahead. The higher the interest rate, the harder it's going to be. You know, if you take a a company with a, like Ford or something like that, that has a really good dividend of, let's say 5%, if that, if that company has regularly paid their dividend without interruptions for the last 80 years, the chances that they're going to stop their dividends is fairly small. It does happen, but it's unlikely. So if they have a 5% dividend and you can borrow money at even 4%, then, it's free money at that point, right? Assuming they don't have some kind of shenanigans that go on that causes them to lose money, there's always a risk no matter what. But it's just an example, another example similar to the bonds. How much is Ford paying? And let's let's check, just as S's and G's. Ford stock. I'm just curious. Sorry for the diversion here. Look on Yahoo Finance. Because they actually... I don't know what they do with the rest of their website, but Yahoo Finance is actually pretty good for finance stuff. Uh, Forward dividend yield is actually 5.3%, 5.36%. So yeah, I just picked a random number and it turns out I was actually very, very close to the real number. (laughs) That's funny. Anyways, interest rates affect everything in the economy. Businesses that are big, small, everything in between, uh, individuals, everybody borrows money pretty much at some point or other especially these days when, with housing being as expensive as it is, not just in California, but all over the world, it's bad from what I hear. You know, I see articles sometimes about people in this place or that place, you know, England or Canada or whatever, people are having trouble affording their houses. And it's just, it's too unfortunate. It's just really unfortunate. All right, let's get to it. The Greenspan put, uh, gee, we're at 40 minutes here, 45 minutes, something like that. And we've ju- we're just now getting to what is a put, <laughs> That's how many different things there are to talk about with this type of t- type of topic. It gets real complicated real quick. A put so the greenspan put is named after a put option. A put option is a contract that gives the owner the right but not the obligation to sell a certain amount of the underlying asset at a set price within a specific time. That's from investopedia. So basically you're not bu- you are not buying the underlying asset. you're buying an option. Or a contract to buy or sell the underlying asset. Basically, what this means is the put option, the value of that option goes up when the stock price goes down. So you buy a put option, you benefit if the price declines. It may seem like an odd thing to do. Why would you buy an option instead of short selling or going long? But this is often used by institutions. You know, big you know hedge funds, mutual funds, people with big money will option often use put options as insurance that the price goes, the price declines. So you know, it's if you buy stocks, it's not that easy to buy insurance against a loss. I'm not sure that that's even a real thing. I mean, who in their right mind is going to take that bet, right? What kind of insurance company? I don't know, but. Uh, you can get a similar effect by spending money on put options because you're, you get the, the put options, you're not buying a one-to-one price. So an option to buy or sell one share costs a lot less than buying one share. So it's insurance, you know, just like insurance on your car costs a lot less than replacing the car. So the reason they call the Greenspan put, put, the reason they call it a put and not a call, a call would be when the market goes up, um. you you make money when the market goes up is because when the market went down, Greenspan bailed it out. So they saw the Greenspan put as insurance against a market downturn. So when the market went down, Greenspan would lower interest rates to prop things back up or to cause the market to go back up. You might say this is uh, market manipulation and you might say that Greenspan was a wealthy individual and he was connected to and friends with wealthy individuals. So it seems like maybe manipulating the market this way might be a little, a little bit of a conflict of interest or a little shady, but I don't know. On the other hand, he's got a job to do and that's how he thought he should be doing the job. I'm sure that, you know, his personal finances and the finances of his friends had nothing to do with his decisions. (laughs) He says sarcastically, so, anyways, the Fed had some other tools at their disposal in case rather than just adjusting interest rates, they had other stuff they could do when the shit really hit the fan. So the Federal Reserve can purchase treasury, well, they so under Greenspan, he came up with this idea to purchase treasury bonds in low in large amounts, which would then lower the yield of these treasury bonds. This is important because wall street Wall Street banks, Held or still do hold a lot of these treasury bonds to earn a little bit of interest on them. They don't pay a ton of interest, but they pay a little bit. So when the Fed, when the Federal Reserve decided to purchase a butt ton of these bonds, it lowers the yield because it increases the demand. So the yield comes down. We won't get into the weeds too much with that one. But basically, a bond has a certain coupon rate, I think they call it, which is a certain percentage. So if your bond has, you know, regular payments and the, you know, at the end of the deal, you have a 10-year bond and at the end of the, if you wait the full 10 years, the bond will end up paying 10%, right? But it turns out people buy and sell bonds all the time. They don't necessarily hold them for the full term of the the loan essentially is what it is. Instead, they can buy and sell those and adjusting the interest rates affects the underlying value of the bond. So that's why a bond with a set interest rate the value will fluctuate based on different things like for example buying a crap load of them. I know I don't want to get into this too much because it's it gets pretty complicated and it's kind of confusing so let's move on beyond that just but to suffice to say that uh it's seems strange but something with a fixed interest rate yield the the value of that thing changes over time it, it the value fluctuates in the market you know it's very strange very strange concept, but so are many, many things in the realm of Wall Street and the economy at large. Anyway, so buying a butt ton of them lowering the yield increase um, increasing the value or whatever. so that increases the value of the underlying cost to buy the bond basically. so that allows the banks to sell those bonds at a profit, get them off their books with a bunch of extra money, so that they can take that money and turn it around and invest it in other stuff. The idea here is that this stimulates the money or the money, the economy, because now you're basically juicing the banks and they can go and buy a bunch of other crap. That seems like a good idea, maybe. But the problem that a lot of people have with this is that now you you basically have a quote unquote government entity that is not really a government entity that is just basically stuffing money profits into the pockets of banks. And since the Federal Reserve basically is the banks, you have this incestuous relationship where the bank is basically stuffing its own pockets in a very indirect way with profits. And it's at everybody else's expense. They use interesting terminology like this. They don't say, that we are stuffing our own pockets with money. They say we are injecting the system with capital, almost like you're going to the doctor and they're injecting you with medicine. Depends on who you are. If you're a banker and you're getting, you know, if you're a mid-tier banker and you're getting hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of bonuses every year, who knows what the people on top are making, then you're probably, you know, in favor of this sort of thing, but if you're everybody else who suffers as a result, then you might not be so keen. <laughs> you might not be as interested in these banks getting these free profits at your expense. They also the Fed also provided Wall Street banks with short-term loans that could be rolled over indefinitely, that basically they never really had to pay back to purchase distressed assets. Hmm. Does this seem a little odd to anybody else that the Federal Reserve an entity that is supposed to just um, you know, regulate interest rates and take broad strokes to guide the economy is providing private investment banks with low-interest loans so that they can go buy distressed assets like companies that are about to go bankrupt or anything that went down in price to buy those things to force the price to go higher. Does this sound like market manipulation to anybody else? Because it sure sounds like it to me. Again, if you read articles about this stuff, they will use creative language. They will say anything and everything but market manipulation. But to me, that's what it seems like it is. And it seems awfully convenient that the method they use to quote unquote save the economy or improve the economy just so happens to benefit an extremely small number of people at the expense of everybody else. This whole thing starts seeming a little bit nonsensical if you think, okay, so this is what Alan Greenspan was doing. This is the Greenspan put. The Fed invents money out of thin air, gives it to investment banks with the agreement. They don't just give it to the investment banks. You know, If, if this was a laissez-faire or free market capitalism action, then they would just say, okay, if we give money to these banks, then they will do the right thing with it and put it where it needs to go. But of course, you know, that never happens. So they had to make an agreement with the banks that the banks will buy specific distressed assets and price prop up the price of that stuff. This seems like the exact opposite of what Alan Greenspan and a lot of people believe with laissez-faire capitalism. This, to me, appears to be extremely heavy handed capitalism. This is not free market at all. This is nothing to do with a level playing field, nothing to do with a free market, just figuring itself out and arriving at the correct price. This is, you know, a lot of people have terms for this. One of them is socialism for the rich and capitalism for everybody else. Because if the rich, if their assets go down, they get a bailout. If we, if our assets go down, then we are screwed. Just think about how many people lost their houses in the 2008 crisis because of predatory lending practices where people would get a loan that they thought they could afford, but it turns out that they didn't fully understand the terms of those loans. So their payment that was interest-free at first for a couple of years ended up ballooning to something that they could not hope to be able to pay. So then they lost their house. But what happens when the, the Wall Street bankers, what happens when they make bad decisions? They just get bailed out with our money. But when we make bad decisions, we end up being homeless. On October 19th, 1987, there was a stock market crash known as Black Monday. There's other events known as Black Monday. This is one of them. Worldwide losses were about $1.7 trillion. That is insane. The Dow fell 22.6%, the largest one-day drop in the history Of the exchange now. anybody, uh, anybody unfamiliar, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is it's an average or it's an index of thirty industrial companies in the United States. Thirty of the biggest, I should say, thirty. It's I don't think it's industrial anymore, but basically thirty of the biggest companies in the United States, and the those how those thirty companies do over time, the average of their performance is generally seen as a marker of the economy overall. Uh, this is just one one marker of these. I prefer indexes like the s and p five hundred or even the Russell two thousand stuff like that because um, to me, it makes more sense that you have a more comprehensible, more com- more comprehensive bookmark, I should say, of what's going on in the you know in the stock market and how these companies are doing. The exact causes of the crash are debatable and not entirely agreed upon. Certain factors, such as the declining value of the dollar, rising interest rates, and even computer trading, appear to be factors. Yes, computer trading was going on way back then, I guess, and maybe it was just as problematic then as as it is now. Okay, the economy was doing really well, which is why this crash was surprising. Things were great. Everybody was doing good. Well, not everybody, you know how it is, but most people were, man. It was good. It was a good time for a lot of people. But stock prices had been rising much faster than the economy itself was growing. So in other words, there was basically an asset price bubble. So this was, you know, regardless of what the causes were, this could have been simply a bubble popping, which by the way, Alan Greenspan doesn't think, or at least one time did not think the bubbles were even possible because there is something called the uh, the, um, efficient market hypothesis. This is a big thing in the 80s, huge thing in the 80s, along with, you know, trickle down, which has been thoroughly debunked, but it's still around. But the efficient market hypothesis is the idea that the price at the market of, of an asset at any given time is accurate because um, because the market participants, you know, one participant might have a wrong idea about the value, but on the whole all of the data available to all of the market participants will even out to, to reflect an accurate price. So therefore bubbles are not even possible because that's what the value should be because that's what the value is. It's a complicated way of saying, I guess, of just saying uh, something is worth what people are willing to pay for it. Right. But the uh, the thing is, though, is that this idea has been proven wrong time and time again. You know, the what's the old saying? The market, can stay rational, irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And that refers to like short selling or investing in a, a price, a company with a price that's irrational. You know, it's sometimes it, it could be irrational for a very long time. So anyways, I don't want to get too much into the weeds of that. There are people who are proponents of that idea. Um, I'm not one of them. But then again, I am not, uh, you know, one of these so-called geniuses either. <laughs> so anyways, people freaked out we're talking about again, just to get back from that diversion, um, the October nineteenth, nineteen eighty-seven stock market crash. People were freaked out. This was a huge crash, and people were afraid that there was going to be another nineteen twenty-nine like event that would lead to another Great Depression. Uh, the the factors going into it were a little bit different. Um, for example, you know, nineteen twenty-nine crash. One of the major factors there was over leverage. So when When there were margin calls and people had to basically pay back their loans, they could not because the money just wasn't there and the whole thing just unfolded like a deck of cards. That was not the same thing as 1987, but still people were very afraid that that would happen again. And then we would go into another period, another decades long period where things were horrible for everybody. Are you starting to get the sense that maybe the people in charge of this stuff don't know what they're doing? And that maybe um, they're not the right people to have in charge of this stuff. I don't know. That idea occurs to me sometimes when I'm reading through these things, investigating these things for the show. But uh, who am I? I'm just some guy sitting in a shed in his backyard, ranting and raving into a microphone, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, part of that statement is true. Which one? It's up to you. I don't know. All right. So during the crash, there were a high number of margin calls. So there were margin calls, but not like 1929. Well, as far as I'm aware, I'd have to look up the data. I don't know. But anyways, there was about 10 times the normal number of margin calls because when something goes down and you bought that something on a loan, I guess I should say what a margin call is because people may not be familiar with that who are listening. So a margin call is when, when you buy something with a loan, you're buying it on margin. And the margin requirements are different depending on what you're buying and who you're buying it through, you know your broker or whatever. So let's say if I have ten dollars in my stock broker account, I can buy a lot more than that on the margin. So depending on the account and the requirements, I might be able to buy a hundred dollars in stock with just ten dollars a margin. The more you buy, the more the more you buy on margin. In other words, the more loan you take out to buy stuff the more it amplifies your gains and losses. So if it goes up a dollar, then that's like going up, you know, a bunch because you're buying a hundred dollars with only $10. But again, if it goes down $1, you lose more because you've taken out all these loans. Pretty simple, right? And it depends on the asset. For example, if you're going to buy Forex foreign exchange, where you're gambling on the change in value of currencies between different currency pairs, because of the nature of that market, I won't get into it, but the margins on those are wild, man. Your margins in those markets are hundred to three hundred to one, something like that. So for every dollar you have in your account, you can borrow two, three hundred dollars, or more, to buy different currencies and hope that it goes, the the bet goes your direction so that you can, you know, it'll pay you out (laughs) something. So it depends on the market, what the, you know, the margins are. So anyways, during this crash, there were more margin calls than normal. And that only served to compound how much the stock market went down. Um, There were, there were so many margin calls that a lot of companies started to run out of money. They tried to borrow more money to cover the shortfall because their customers so the, the way it works is a lot of, a lot of accounts is that you have, if you have a margin call, you have to sell, they force you to liquidate your assets. So they, they go ahead and liquidate that for you. And then any cash shortfall, you have to put into your account by the end of the day. But I'm guessing a lot of these people didn't even have the cash to do that. And even if they did, they weren't required to do it right away. So a lot of these, you know, brokerage accounts and investment banks and whatever, they just didn't have the money to cover these things. So that caused like this cascading effect. And while they they tried to get loans, temporary loans, to get the money to cover it in the short term, but they ran out of credit, they hit their limits, and there still wasn't enough money. Plus, banks were very reluctant to loan out money under these conditions, because chances are they would not get it back. So banks said. I don't think so. We're not stupid. We're not giving you more money when you've already hit your credit limit. And you're not going to be able to pay that back, let alone more. Why would you do that? You know, if you're a bank, makes sense. Uh, the next day, the Tuesday, the Federal Reserve stepped in and acted as the lender of last resort. This is an unusual, highly unusual move by the Federal Reserve, which has since been normalized. I don't know that this is the first time it's happened, but it was definitely not the normal thing to do. Here is a quote from Alan Greenspan. The Federal Reserve, consistent with its responsibilities as the nation's central bank, affirmed today its readiness to serve as a source of liquidity to support the economic and financial system. It sounds very nice, right? The way like I said, remember I said they'd use certain terminology to justify their actions, but in reality what he's doing here is he's having he's giving free money to banks essentially to buy distressed assets to pump up the price market manipulation because they don't want to lose money. This is pretty wild stuff. And, you know, if you talk to the average person on the street about this and say that it was market manipulation, they'll say, I don't think so. That's just what they're supposed to do. You know, they're supposed to prop up the economy. But my contention with that is look at who benefits from this. You know, like I've said before, You know, if, if you were one of those people who lost your money in this market crash, you did not get a bailout. The banks got the bailouts. The hedge funds got the bailouts. Individuals did not get the bailouts. Individuals got hung out, got hung out to dry. We lost our money. These things are so complicated that who are you and I to say, oh, that's not how it should be done. They're going to say, okay, what's your solution? You know? Well, my solution would be, all right, well, let the markets crash, let too big to fail, let that fail. See what happens. You know, maybe it'll cause a lot of pain for everybody in the short run, but maybe we'll get back to some sort of sense of reasonable regulation like we did after the Great Depression that will stabilize things for a while and you can look at what happened after the great depression, they put in a lot of rules to prevent this thing from happening. And what happened is over time they eroded and got rid of those rules. And what happens after they got rid of these rules very shortly thereafter, the shit hit the fan. So the stuff they were trying to prevent happened. And of course things got bad. And instead of, making new rules again, or reinstating old rules to prevent this stuff from happening. They just keep bailing stuff out. We are now in a perpetual state of bailout. The market rallied temporarily on the Tuesday when Greenspan Mm -hmm. announced that he was going to bail it out, but then continued to go back down because if a market is in free fall, nobody wants to be involved with that. Everybody's going to sell because they don't want to be there when it hits rock bottom. You know, you say, okay, I'll pull my money out and then I'll wait until it goes down, and then I'll buy when it looks safe again. The Fed began injecting money into the financial system via purchases on the open market. So they just, they're just buying up stocks and other assets just to prop up the price. This is insane, insane. And this is, again, the guy who believes in free market capitalism, no regulation, no interference, the invisible hand of the market and all that stuff. Anyways, it injected $17 billion on the 20th, on Tuesday. On Tuesday, let me say that again. On Tuesday, the Federal Reserve injected, quote unquote, injected $17 billion into the market. Can I have $17 billion for one day? I would love to have that for just one day. Put it in your bank account, earn half a percent interest. Oh, that'd be awesome, right? On the 20th, which was $7 billion percent of the monetary base in the entire nation. That is insane. The level of money that they pumped into the stock market to prop up the prices is absolutely insane. They continued purchasing securities for weeks after the crash. They eventually sold all of those back for a profit or at least not a loss for, it says online, "A a modest, a modest profit. But again, how is that fair that they're able to manipulate the price? Because they essentially have an unlimited amount of money, so they could just keep buying until the price goes up. And then when it goes up, they can just sell and then cash back. You know, again, this is the Federal Reserve, which is a private institution, not public. So the whole thing just kind of stinks. It's market manipulation, just straight up. So the Fed got also got banks to lend to each other, basically by asking them nicely and by giving them money. <laughs> so as the story goes, the Federal Reserve intervened and prevented a complete collapse of our financial system. And this is, this is the first event that's generally referred to as the Greenspan put, insurance against a market failure. But Wall Street saw this bailout as insurance against further crashes, hence the name the Greenspan put. After all, if this happened again in the future, surely the Fed would bail them out again. And of course, that's what happened in the future when the market crashed again, because it turns out by doing this, they, they, they're they just sticking their finger in the dam. You know, Alan Greenspan didn't fix the underlying problem. The underlying problem was still there what all he did was just kick the can down the road and guarantee that it would happen again in the future he bailed out the markets again during the savings and loan crisis which could be a whole other episode the gulf war market crash the mexican uh, monetary crisis which is a whole other thing and the long term capital management hedge fund collapse which is again a whole other thing let's talk about the um the long term capital management hedge fund just a little bit, otherwise known as the LTC MHF, I guess, they were a highly leveraged hedge fund, meaning that they took out a ton of loans to invest in stuff. And because it was a private investment company, they didn't have to follow the same rules as, let's say, a public investment bank. Not anybody can just put their money in a hedge fund. It's a private fund. They initially, when they first opened in 1994, they were extremely successful they made 21% return the first year, 43 43% the second year and a 41% return the third year. These are pretty incredible numbers. It is extremely rare for somebody to make this much money. The mar- the yearly market average return is 10% in the history of the stock market on average. Sometimes it's a lot more, sometimes it's a lot less, but in general, if you can if you're an investment firm and you can do 10%, even just 10% a year, then you're a rock star. So 20, 40%, those are extremely good numbers, right? Extremely. That was getting people's attention. But the fourth year, the fourth year, they lost a staggering $4.6 billion in less than four months. And after that, after losing that kind of money, the the, comp- the hedge fund was done. They're done, done, dunsky. But the Federal Reserve orchestrated a bailout by 14 financial institutions. They bailed it out, they saved it, they bought all the assets, they propped up the prices, and eventually liquidated the fund a few years later in the year 2000. Kind of makes you wonder, why this hedge fund? Why would they bail out this hedge fund? Most hedge funds do not accept money from just your average people. You have to be, there's like a minimum investment, You'd have to, it's to. I don't know what this one was, but usually there's a minimum investment of like a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, something like that. This these funds are not for people like you and me. So who had money in this particular hedge fund? Well, turns out, <laughs> you know, like I said before, if you're going to go crime, do big or do crime, go big, whatever, like real big. In this case, it's not even crime because the people making the decisions get to set the rules. If you or I did something like this, it would be insider trading or it'd be market manipulation and we would go to jail and we'd have to give back our money. But in this case, um, the people who had money in this fund were financial professionals, Wall Street bankers and traders and Greenspan's friends, basically. Isn't there some kind of conflict of interest there when – you have this very sub- small subset of people who ha- who have a financial problem and then they get bailed out. They get to bail themselves out. It's just, the system is just absolutely insane. It's incestuous, schizophrenic, whatever you want to call it. It's just a really strange system. And uh, you, you might think, okay, well, if these are private banks, then what, what does it matter that they're bailing out with private, with their own money? But it's, I mean, it affects everybody, right? Because they create the money. So they are using our money to do it. Anyways, the bailout amount was about $3.6 billion, and the cl- the claim was that if they didn't get this bailout, there would be a collapse of the wider system if this hedge fund was allowed to go under. I'm not sure I believe that. Dude, there are a bunch of different hedge funds and you're telling me just one of them collapsing would threaten the entire financial system. So instead of just bailing them out, Don't you think that perhaps we should change the system? Because if any one of these hedge funds has a risky strategy and it could go under any day, I don't know, dude. That's pretty wild. That's pretty crazy stuff, right? Now, the problem here has a term. The term is called moral hazard. Here's a quote from the Cradle of All Knowledge, once again, Wikipedia. Moral hazard is a situation where an economic actor where an economic actor has an incentive to increase its exposure to risk because it doesn't it does not bear the full costs of that risk. For example, when a corporation is insured, it may take on higher risk, knowing that its insurance will pay the associated costs. And that's what the green greenspan put did. It encouraged market participants to take huge risks. Because they knew if things got bad, the Fed would just step in and bail them out. That So they basically took away moral hazard. It's insane. You know, it's this system. When you look at it, it just, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's absolutely crazy. So of course, this led to, you know, like I said, this only made things worse over time. And it culminated in the late 90s and peaked on March 10th, 2000, when the dot-com bubble burst. I don't think I need to go over the dot-com bubble. The internet was blowing up and anybody with a web domain was getting millions of dollars of millions in investment dollars from investment banks. Uh, But the market dropped 78% from its peak, wiping out all of the gains that happened during the run-up. Did they learn their lesson? Of course not. They did not learn their lesson. After the dot-com fiasco, Greenspan moved on to mortgage-backed securities, pumping the shit out of those with the inevitable result of the 2008 global meltdown. And even today, as I speak, they have um, constant actions to bail out the markets. This has not gotten better. This has only gotten worse. I remember at one point, A couple years ago, I was just, I was watching, you know, you'd see in the news occasionally, but it wasn't well covered. I think the difference is that they don't cover this stuff in the news anymore. Uh, It's not a coincidence that most news outlets are owned by a handful of billionaires. That's, you know, that's part of the reason I believe. But there, I mean, there was a point when they were bailing out the markets to the tune of billions of dollars every night, every single night, they would quote unquote, inject money into the markets to keep it from collapsing. We are in a perpetual state of near collapse with our financial markets. That's where we are right now, and I feel that at some point the pressure is going to build up and it only needs a catalyst and the whole thing is going to blow. When will that be? I don't know, but you could, you know, you can trace it all back probably before this, but one of the big changes, one of the big shifts of our economic system was the Greenspan put where they willingly willingly bailed out and manipulated markets. And the more they did that, the worse behavior they got from private investment institutions because they knew they could do anything and they would get bailed out. So they just kept getting worse. And we're, we're in a very sad state of affairs right now And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that it affects everybody, not just in the United States, it affects everybody in the entire world, you know, so I I think it's, I don't know, this one kind of gets me frustrated, because you have just a handful of individuals who affect everybody's life. You know, they, they cause financial hardships, they cause people who are about to retire, to have to work for more years of their life, and they may not even be able to retire at all, you know, you work your whole life comes time to retire, spend time with your grandkids, whatever it is you want to do with your, you know, the the golden years. Um you don't get to do that. There's plenty of places in the world where this kind of stuff affected businesses to the point where they went under. They went under business, you know, small businesses bankrupt. People lose losing their livelihoods, people losing their life savings. And all that stuff, they're basically being robbed by a very small handful of bad actors. Did I just call Alan Greenspan a bad actor? Yes, I did. We do not have a fair market. We do not have a free market. Laissez faire is a myth that they sell us so that they can fool us into thinking that what they're doing is good when in fact it is evil. All right, let's skip over. We're going a little long here. So let's skip over some of these notes. Here is a quote by Steve Pearlstein. In essence, the Fed has adopted a strategy that works like a one-way ratchet, providing a floor for the stock and bond prices, but never a ceiling. The result, in part, has been a series of financial crises, each requiring a bigger bailout than the last. But when the storm finally passes and it's time to begin um, uh, mopping up all that emergency credit the Fed inevitably caves in to pressure from Wall Street, the White House, business leaders, and unions, and conjures up some rationalization for keeping the party going. One of the the interesting side effects of all this, I say interesting using that word facetiously, is that um, real wages have been stagnant for decades, right? Because of stuff like the Greenspan put, Asset prices have gone through the roof, right? Just look at the, the P-E ratio of the market, of the stock market, the price-to-earnings ratio. The That is basically what investors are willing to pay for $1 of profits. Historically, it's averaged about 15, and right now it is above 20, and it is never going back down. It's going to stay there, and it's only going to go up. Asset price inflation, and yet people are, on average, are not really making more than they did 10 years, 20 years ago, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm going to ballpark some numbers here, but let's say like in 1980, the average college graduate made, I don't know, let's say $30,000, $40,000, right? And the average house you could buy in a nice neighborhood, you could buy a house for under $200,000. My parents bought a, 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 not like a mansion or anything, just a middle-class house, and they paid, I think, $120,000 for it, or something like that. Back then, you could work a blue-collar job, even a minimum-wage job, <laughs> and possibly be able to afford a condo or something at the very least. But you know, these days, that same house that my parents bought is probably worth, I don't know, at least $800,000, maybe more. And the average college graduate probably makes fifty, sixty thousand dollars. The numbers just don't make sense. People are being squeezed to death. These are some of the consequences of the Greenspan put and the long term application of it on our asset prices. Like that last quote said, it's a one way ratchet where prices can only go up. You don't have a natural business cycle where you have give and take, and you don't have a situation where there's a free market and employees can just go get a better job that pays more somewhere else. That is not an option for most people, and even if it was, it's extremely unfair to employees to have to move, uproot their entire lives, go somewhere else to, you know, across the country and where they don't have any friends or family anymore or whatever, you know. All right. Wall Street profits went way up under Greenspan. Anytime the stock market dipped, he just lowered the interest rates or bought distressed assets and jacked it right back up. Interest rates declined for years and reached points of near zero for a very long time. And this increased asset prices, like I've already said, and to the point where it hurt everyday people, but helped the wealthy. Um, This was actually really good for investment banks who borrowed tons and tons of money from the Fed to buy distressed assets. And they used repurchase agreements to buy non-distressed assets. And uh, they shot those assets into the stratosphere. Because if if you're pumping a distressed asset... Then that makes it go back up to a, a higher price. But if you're pumping an asset that's not distressed, well, it just shoots it up that much higher because it wasn't down to begin with, right? Under these policies that Greenspan has has uh, the Greenspan enacted and his, success for, his successors have continued, we have the widest wealth inequality in the history of the United States. That means the top one percent make own more of the wealth than they ever have. And this leads to problems. In my opinion, you have people who are struggling just to make ends meet and you could say, Oh, just buy less stuff. But it's a bigger problem than that. For example, young people, young people are no longer having kids. I know plenty of younger couples that I've met that either want to wait until their thirties or forties to have children. Um, I I can't even imagine. I mean, I'm in my forties right now. I mean, I'm, I'm not that old. (laughs) I'm not old. Shut up. No, but I can't imagine having kids right now, but they can't afford, they can barely afford rent. How can they possibly raise kids? You know? So they, I mean, this has all sorts of negative implications and in the long run, I think that's really bad for the, you know, successful continuation of a nation. If people are so hard up that they don't even have kids anymore, I know everybody I know under 30 is living with their kid, with their parents. I don't know a ton of people under 30, but you meet people occasionally. Everybody's living at home. When my kids graduate, I'd be more than happy for them to live at home indefinitely because I would much rather them get a steady footing on their life rather than putting themselves in a permanent debt cycle to buy a house or rent to live in rent. It took us years to be able to afford a house to get out of this cycle because rent is very expensive and you're not building equity. So you just get stuck in this cycle where you never have enough money to do anything. It just, and it just gets more expensive over time. So if you get a a raise at work, you start making more money. Well, rent went up more than your raise. So you're just, you know, you you could never get ahead. It's, it's awful. We finally gotten to a point where we're in a house and, you know, we pay, we pay too much for it, but at least our payment is not going to go up over time, (laughs) you know, regardless of what the market does, we can afford our payment and that payment will stay what it is now. So we're set as far as that goes, I guess. All right. Here's a quote from a prominent member of government. Well, let me just say that the number I think that is staggering is that we have more people unemployed and on unemployment benefits than any time in our country's history. We know That the Fed is shoring up the markets so that the stock market can do well. I don't complain about that. I want the market to do well. This is a quote from Nancy Pelosi, one of the richest members of Congress. So she's pointing out this disconnect. We have a total disconnect between the stock market and the economy. Things are getting very difficult for the average person. Meanwhile, the people at the very top are doing great. In 1983, banks earned 15% of all corporate profits. In 1993, they earned 25%. And by 2003, 40% of all corporate profits were earned by banks. Just let that sink in. Ask yourself, should banks be earning that much money? Do they provide 40% benefit to the economy? There's a couple of other miscellaneous things I have here. Uh, (laughs) uh, At one point, uh, Greenspan opposed putting tariffs on China and instead suggested that people who lost their jobs should just go on unemployment and train for different jobs. This is pure insanity. According to the idea of laissez-faire, if you don't like your job, simply find a better one. It's that simple, people. If you're not happy at your job, just go walk outside, just go announce to the world, "I'm getting a new job," and poof. There's your new job. It's going to pay more. Your boss is not going to be a dick anymore. It's going to be great. But in this case, there is not a different job or a better job because they all went overseas. <laughs> so that I mean that's just little little tidbit I thought was Kind of amusing that, you know, he, (laughs) Alan Greenspan is like, no, no, it's fine. Just go on unemployment. It's cool. It's cool, guys. All right. Greenspan advised GW Bush to depose Saddam Hussein for the sake of the oil markets. Let's let that sink in for a while. Also a whole nother episode. I won't go into that because we're going pretty long here. Um, You know, in general, Greenspan's ideologies did not match his actual actions, and there's that means to me that there's something going on behind the scenes that he's not telling us about. Whatever he says publicly, there's different things going on behind the scenes. All right, now let's talk about, before we get out of here, the flaw. After all was said and done, Greenspan actually came out and admitted he was wrong, that his ideas had a flaw. The, I wish he hadn't done this because at the very least— you could say that he was acting under an ideology that he thought was correct. But if this guy is really such a rock star, if he's such a financial genius, you know, the, the Sheldon Cooper of the financial world, then why did things go so badly for most people, except for wall street, wall street, they're doing great. They're doing better than they've ever done before. Everybody else, not so much during a congressional hearing. Uh, Greenspan was asked some questions, R- uh, representative Henry Waxman from California asked, and my question for you is simple. Were you wrong? And, and shockingly, Alan Greenspan said, partially, <laughs> I said, partially. Yeah, I was wrong. Henry Waxman says, the question I have for you is you had an ideology. You had a belief that free competitive, and this is your statement, I do have an ideology. My judgment is that free competitive markets are, by the by far, the unrivaled way to organized economies. We've tried regulation. None meaningfully worked. That was your quote. You had the authority to prevent irresponsible lending practices that led to the subprime mortgage crisis. You were advised to do so by many others. And now our whole economy is paying its price. Do you feel that your ideology pushed you to make decisions that you wish you had not made. And I would go one step further and say that he did not make decisions that matched up to his ideology, but I already said that. So anyways, Alan Greenspan responded, well, remember that what an ideology is, is a conceptual framework with the way people deal with reality. Everyone has one. You have to, to exist, you need an ideology. The question is whether it is accurate or not. And what I'm saying to you is, yes, I found a flaw. I don't know how significant or permanent it is, but I've been very distressed by that fact. So it sounds to me like he's kind of soft selling the fact that he just straight out manipulated the shit out of the markets. Henry Waxman says, you found a flaw in the reality. And then Greenspan says flaw in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works. So to speak, notice how he's using some very flowery language here. Henry Waxman said, in other words, you found that your view of the world, your ideology was not right. It was not working. And this is just so infuriating to me because this guy is supposed to be a rock star. He's supposed to be a genius. He's supposed to know how to work the markets in everybody's best interest. And he was just manipulating the markets to benefit himself and others. And here he is hiding behind the idea of ideology, not admitting He's admitting a mistake, but he's not admitting that he basically just straight up manipulated shit. Oh, this, just gets me so steamed. All right. Alan Greenspan said, that is precisely, no, that's precisely the reason I was shocked because I had been going, I had been going for 40 years or more with very considerable evidence that it was working exceptionally well. And it was, if, if you were on wall street and if you are a wealthy individual who can own 15 vacation houses and a yacht and all that stuff. You're insulated from the reality that most people face. You don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. You don't know how stressful it is when you're already working paycheck to paycheck. And then, you know, your landlord calls you up and says, okay, we're going to increase your rent by $200 a month next year. Just how stressful that is. And you start thinking, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna have to get another job to cover that rent. They've never had to live that life. They don't know what it's like. So for them, it worked great. They only saw what benefited them, and they probably had their blinders on and did not pay attention to what what it was like for everybody else, what these asset price bubbles, how it affected everybody else. Anyway, uh, Dennis Kucinich from Ohio says, "Uh, now, Mr. Greenspan, before the collapse of the housing bubble, didn't you also say that the U.S. has not experienced housing slumps to justify your policy that there would be no bubble? And can you tell this committee when it occurred to you that there was a housing bubble? Alan Greenspan says, I knew the housing bubble became clear to me sometime in early 2006. In retrospect, I did not forecast a significant decline because we had never had a significant decline in prices. And it's only as the process began to emerge that it became clear that we were about to have what essentially was a global decline in home prices. And I think that if, uh, you know, to quote to quote, <laughs> to quote a, a YouTuber that I watch once in a great while, I definitely smell shite, uh, or quote his video anyways. Judy Woodruff, this is a journalist who wrote the article that I got these quotes from, said that Greenspan, uh, summarizing in the article, Greenspan and Cox contended regulators cannot predict crises, crises and Chairman Waxman, Waxman took issue with that. Waxman says, Well, I want smart regulation, but I want to point out that what I'm hearing from our witnesses today is that they just didn't know. They couldn't make projections about what the future was, or they're not always right. The truth of the matter is that there were a lot of warning signs. The reasons why we set up your agencies and gave you budget authority to hire people is so that you can see problems developing before they become a financial crisis. To tell us afterwards... When we are now faced with the disaster that we're seeing, that you couldn't have foreseen it just doesn't satisfy me. Judy Woodruff says Greenspan, who was once dubbed the Oracle in the world of finance, says his predictive powers were limited. Also wall street called him the maestro (laughs) just a little tidbit there alan greenspan said so it strikes me that if you go back and ask yourself how in the early years anybody could realistically make a judgment as to what was ultimately going to happen to subprime i think you're asking more than anybody is capable of judging bullshit there are people who did predict it and we have this extraordinary extraordinarily complex global economy which, as everybody now realizes, is very difficult to forecast in any considerable detail. And, Mr. Chairman, I know I agree with you in the fact that there were a lot of people who raised issues about problems emerging, but there are always a lot of people raising issues, and half the time, they're wrong. And the question is, what do you do? I mean, you point out quite correctly that the Federal Reserve has, ha- has as good an economic organization as exists. And I would say in the world, if all those extraordinarily capable people were unable to foresee the development of this critical problem, which undoubtedly was the cause of the world problem with respect to mortgage-backed securities, I have to, I think we have to ask ourselves, why is that? And the answer is that we're not smart enough as people. We just cannot see events that far in advance, and unless we can, it is very difficult to look back and say, why didn't we catch something? Now, there are some logical fallacies involved there, but let's not go into that particular rant. It is getting um, a little late here, and I'd like to start the edit so I can get this episode out and start moving on to the next great thing, (laughs) but this uh just the way these people think is absolutely shocking first of all there were people who predicted this kind of stuff there were people who said hey these policies are not good this should not be but those people were ignored you know i don't know it's there's a lot more to go in on this we've barely scratched the surface i know i say this a lot on certain episodes but we've barely scratched the surface of this topic and it's a very problematic topic and i'm sure i'm sure we will revisit it sooner or later but we have a, we have a serious economic problem going on here. And, you know, Alan Greenspan here is hiding behind ideology, but when you look at his actions, forget his words. When you look at actions, his actions are very clear, very, very clear. You know, when somebody commits a crime, you don't have to worry about their motive necessarily if they're caught in the crime. In this case, what he did should be a crime. It's straight up market manipulation that benefited only a very small sect of society and hurt everybody else, but they kept doing it and they're still doing it today. All right. Rant over, I guess. Apologies for the rants this episode. I just, these topics just get me so fired up because a lot of us work very hard to get what we do. And then, you know, you could work hard your whole life. And then one day, all of a sudden, just the rug gets pulled out from under you, and now you're, you're penniless. And meanwhile, these people on Wall Street are just getting tons and tons of bonuses all day long. They're getting filthy, stinking rich. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we um, you could really help us out by suggesting the show to your friends and leaving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, yeah, that's about all we got for you this time. If you like to access After Hours bonus episodes and more. Check us out on Patreon. All right. Well, peace out, everybody. And until next time, keep it strange.